Hey guys, it's Marcin Drozd. I'm here with Alex and uh, Aziz. We're talking about multifamily, how to raise capital and how to get out of your W-2 into multifamily. Hi, I'm Alex Escobar and welcome to Screw the Stock Market, where we'll explore the world of alternative investments outside of the stock market so we can change our lives, take control of our future and find those coveted low risk, high reward opportunities for building wealth. Let's do it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Screw the Stock Market. We're really excited to have you on the show today. Today, we're talking to Marcin Droz. He is a very experienced multifamily real estate investor. He is also, he runs his own fund and he's a trainer of multifamily real estate investors. So it's a really cool episode. We talk a lot of shop. Uh, Hopefully we didn't get too into the jargon. What do you think, Aziz? I thought it was great. I was worried that we'd get too much into the jargon, but I thought it was a good balance. We try to break up the episode for, you know, the general layman investor who wants to be just a passive investor. And then the back half for those of us that are already are in the industry and are more experienced professionals in that real estate investing. So I thought we got a good balance of both, but he's very knowledgeable, very experienced and had a lot of good information to share. Everything from how to basically decide whether something is good, a good idea to invest in to how to start a fund and what you should look for. Very cool. Hope you guys get a lot from it and enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Screw the Stock Market. We're really excited to have you on the show today. Today, we're talking to Marcin Drozd, and he's a multifamily brother. We're really excited to have you on the show. We're going to be talking about, so these, you're the newest one in the room here to the multifamily game. So keep us honest, please prevent us from getting into the jargon and fast talking. We want everyone to be able to follow along and learn the lessons that Marcin's going to be sharing with us. Uh, I got you. Welcome I got you show. covered. Don't worry. All right. Good stuff. Welcome. Thanks for being with us, Marcin. Thanks a lot. Okay. So we're not going to talk about cash, I cash, IRR, EM, uh, going in cap rates, going out cap rates. Well, we'll keep that stuff to a minimum. It's, it's, uh, exactly I'll force define everything. So go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. Excellent. You know, normally, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and where you came from? Sure, I'd love to. I started out in uh, multifamily working at a private equity firm back in my early 20s. Before that, I was buying houses, you know, like so many people, Red Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm like, yeah, I could do that. And, you know, house, two houses, three houses, go through school. You realize that you know, I thought maybe I'd be a lawyer. I thought maybe I'd be an accountant. I wasn't really sure at the time, but the school thing, it did the school thing. I was bored out of my brain. So many people could relate to it, right? So the difference was that in my early 20s, I took the plunge the other way rather than the conventional way. I uh, got pulled into a private equity and then immediately went from looking at buying houses to, okay, guys, here's this 200, 300 unit apartment building complex. And by the way, we're buying this one this month. We're buying this one now. I know that it was just the sheer volume of activity. And here I am 21, 22 years old, trying to figure out you know, how to buy a duplex. And these guys are talking about 200, 300 unit buildings at a time. So that immediately just like, just, I was broken after that. I couldn't go back. I couldn't go back to just buying houses or, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but once you see how the sausage is made in that scale, you're just, like I said, you're broken. You started looking at things that way. So I spent a few years at the PE firm, helped source well into nine figures in the business there. We ended up buying thousands of apartments. This was back in 08, 09. So right as previously, it was the biggest wealth generating opportunity. And I'm in my early twenties working at this firm, just lots of doors, lots of deals. 
that was a lot of fun. 20, I think 11, 2012, I broke it on my own and we put together either our own eight-figure equity fund. That was a heck of an experience. My only regret was that I wasn't thinking big enough. I did, we, you know, we did an eight-figure fund, probably should have done a nine-figure fund. It's all relative. It's all, but in my mid-20s, I'm like, this is huge. This is cool. Yeah, it was cool. But knowing what I know now, I wasn't thinking big enough, right? Fast forward to today, I've been fortunate to be involved in a lot of transactions. I've uh, done not so well in transaction. If you're at it for 16 years, 17 years, eventually you will see both ends of the market and you'll learn a lot of those lessons, you know, through M1 and whatnot. That's a lot of that stuff. We're happy to get into all that stuff with you guys here today. I would like to start off by saying you probably made a good choice not going the, down the law route. Mm. That's what I did. And, you know, you seem to have a lot more hair than I do. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah. So preserved their hair. So that's good. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting. That. It's interesting that you said that you were thinking too small with the eight figures because we're also starting a fund right now as well. Hopefully by next year, and we thought eight figures would be you know something good and ambitious. But you're saying we should go even higher. Well, I mean, it, different strokes for different folks. I'm just saying that in hindsight, I had the team and the people and the capacity to go bigger. So whether someone should or can go bigger are two different things. It's just a function of where you're at compared to, you know, your ability to think big enough and broadly enough, right? So it's one thing to have grandiose visions. It's another thing to be rooted in reality in terms of what you're capable of, the team that you have. And I'm not saying good or bad for you guys, but it, for me, looking back at it, I had the team, I had the story, we had everything. We should have just gone bigger. Wait, oh, before okay. we jump right in, for those of the listeners who are not familiar with what a private equity fund is, maybe, you know, Marcin, you can give a quick breakdown of what that actually is and how that's used in the real estate game. Sure. You know, we talk about jargon. There's so much jargon that goes around in this industry and private equity in of itself is a different term and a different set. It has a different lexicon altogether. You know, on the real estate side, the most common form of doing deals, people typically either joint venture or they syndicate transactions. Fund typically is a little bit more sophisticated, a lot harder to do because what you're essentially doing is you're saying to the investor, hey, we're going to follow this type of an investment thesis and we're going to acquire things like this in these markets or these parameters or whatever it is. So you're more reliant on the team and the partners involved because you don't actually know which deal or what deals are going to end up in that partnership, but you're relying on the team, on the track record, and on on a general sort of investment thesis, so to speak. Um, and, and then most typically, those funds are structured as SPEs, uh, special purpose entities, where you have you know either an LLC or LPGP or some kind of a structure. And you typically have subsidiaries, so it, it starts to get more and more complicated. But again, from a acquisition standpoint, it's it's fantastic because when you're buying you can demonstrate that you have cash on hand as opposed to trying to tell the seller that, yes, don't worry, we're going to raise the equity. You know, in our case, I could just say, here's proof of funds. And then that immediately changes the dynamic of the negotiation. Oh, yeah. I've been on the other side of that. Yeah. And it's stressful, right? It's very stressful. And yeah, you have to convince the vendor, pardon me, the vendor, the seller that you're going to be able to raise a million, two million, three, five, seven, whatever million dollars. Whereas if you have a fund model and you have cash on hand, you're that much more confident and you can demonstrate that. Absolutely. Uh, Where do we start? So multifamily, (laughs) let's start with our listeners who are 
in a W-2 job, they're gainfully employed, they might be focused on their 401k and thinking about retirement 30, 20 years out. How can multifamily help someone like that? So the starting point for anybody who wants to invest in real estate, regardless of where they're at, my favorite question to ask somebody is, are you interested in investing in real estate or are you interested in being a professional real estate investor? And what that distinguishes is somebody who is just looking to put some cash to work in, in, in something that is going to potentially help them out long term and achieve their goals. Or are they like, you know what? I love this real estate stuff. I want to do everything real estate. Like I want to spend all my time doing real estate. And again, that's a really important question because some people, they confuse uh, multifamily or investing in multifamily to their experience with maybe buying a house or a cottage or whatever it is. And they think it's a much simpler two plus two is four transaction. And sometimes they conflate that with, no, I want to, I want to be involved. I want to be in the deal. And then the question is, okay, so like how involved, you know, I can, you know, once a month, I want to check it out. That's okay. That's great. So it sounds like you want to be involved. You want to be invested in real estate, but you don't actually want to be a professional real estate investor. So the first question that somebody asking themselves has to be, do they want to be a professional real estate investor? Do they want to be invested in real estate? Is the most honest, sincere way to look at things for yourself. Because if you're sitting there with a W-2, and who knows, maybe you love your job. Maybe you love being a doctor, a dentist, a mechanic, whatever it is. Maybe you just genuinely love that profession. You've got to invest somewhere. So you're not just going to invest maybe in the stock market or whatever it is. So you're looking diversity is <laughs> So it's a clever name, by the way. So you're looking for alternatives, but don't confuse that with wanting to be a real estate investor. You know, lots of times I have people say to me, why don't I just do what you do? And I'll take the return. I go, okay, tell you what, I'll give you the money and you do all the work because it's a lot of flipping work. Like finding the asset, the due diligence, the underwriting, the financing, the negotiating, the surprises, the closing. You guys know this is a ton of work. This Buying a house is complicated. Imagine trying to buy 200 houses at once. Yeah, it's worth doing, but it's a fair bit of work. So anyway, long rants, a short, you know, do you want to be invested in real estate or do you want to be a real estate investor? Most people with W-2s, my experience, they just want to be invested in real estate and get to a point where eventually that W-2 doesn't tie them to the need to be there anymore. But by and large, most people that I've come across over these 16, 17 years, they love the idea of real estate. They just don't like the idea of you know making that their 24-7 job. I love yeah, that. I think uh, our experience has been that especially among our investors, they concur. They like the idea. They think it's sexy. They think it's interesting, but they don't want to get all into the weeds with it. So they're, here's our money. Make me rich. Yeah. At least give me a reasonable return. And one out of 10 or one out of 20 or whatever people, one out of a hundred people are going to say, you know what? Yeah, I actually really do like this. And I'm trying to get out of being a dentist or I'm going to sell my dry cleaner or whatever it is. And I want to be a real full-time investor. And, and that's great. But just so you could appreciate that you don't just jump into that no different than you would you know jump from being a chiropractor to being a dentist it's a profession the whole malcolm gladwell ten thousand hours thing that's a real thing and there there's so much to know about multifamily that if you do want to make that transition plan for a three to five year apprenticeship of some sort because i'm 16 17 years in and every day i'm still learning stuff so yeah i do no, want to say too just, you know, we've had other multifamily folks on the show. We've 
I network quite a bit and I don't think I've met too many people who are that experienced too. I've met folks who are very successful, doing great, have had a great track record, but they might be six years in, you know? So I'm yeah, happy and, to have and, you on. And that's fantastic. You know, not to discredit anybody or anything, but until you've seen a downturn, you're on borrowed time because it's easy to have a five-year track record or a three-year track record, especially the last five to anybody that bought anything almost anywhere, you'd have to be really talented to screw it up in the last couple of years. You know, like really talented. You know, what I'm interested in is the next five years, because that's when the pros are going to show up. That's when the guys that know what it is, when the banks stop lending, when bridge lenders start calling in their debts, when equity investors are nervous about writing that check because they see their 401k drop, that's when things are going to get really interesting. That's when the real pros are going to come to the table. And again, I don't, I'm not sure who you've had on your show, but I'm just saying the last five or six years, it's been fairly easy to look like a really smart person in this business. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Ati. Sorry. No, I was going to say it has been in a period of easy lending, even though with all the various issues that have been happening in the world and the economy, banks have been pretty lenient. Yeah. So when we got started in 08, 09, so again, guys, I was a... <laughs> you know, a little dumb kid, 22, 23 years old, I'm running around with the big dogs and, you know, we're buying up stuff. And the reason why we had an easier time is because we knew how to marshal equity together. We could get capital, but debt was hard to come by. Yeah, there were lenders. Yeah, there were banks, there was financing, but it was really tough. And I'm not saying that's what's going to happen today or tomorrow or three years from now, but when the market does pull back, as it always does, that is when the real opportunities really show up. Because right now, everybody is just bidding each other up. There's little margin. But when you have a massive a rebalancing within the economy or whatever you want to call it, whatever the politically correct term is, you can't even acknowledge that we're in a re recession right now, let alone, you know, I, I just, I think it's going to be really interesting over the next few years. So what I think the people that are looking to become passive investors uh, in opportunities is I would be more focused today on return of capital on deals rather than return on capital in deals. So in other words, when you're looking at deals, the starting point should always be, how do I get my money back? Not how do I make my money on my money? Because when I look at something, the first thing I look at is how do I get my money back? And then the risk involved in me getting my money back then determines what my perceived return should be relative to what I'm investing in, if you guys understand. So Let, when I, I determine really how risk, when I look at how risky it is for me to get my money back, that then determines what kind of return I think I should get relative to that investment. Because if somebody says, hey, here's this great investment, we're going to get X dollars. Okay, great. Tell me your exit strategy. And if you're fully dependent on a refinancing in 12 or 24 months, where you're fully dependent on a flip, where you're fully dependent on this or that. And what if those things don't happen because the market does turn or continues to correct, then what happens? Okay. So let's talk a specific example. So, you know, we have some apartment building. Sure. Generally the strategy is, Hey, you're going to make a little cash flow during the whole period. Yeah. And then we're going to try to increase the rents yeah. and then we're going to try to sell it at a higher so price. So, so I get all that, but here's the challenge that a lot of guys aren't accounting for right now. They're not accounting for higher cap rates to refinance in the future. So in other words, they're buying buildings that have, and again, I've tried not to get too technical, but just, just a little bit. If guys are buying buildings at a 5% cap rate today, like a going in cap rate of five, because the market's at five, 
if the cap rates increase because interest rates increase and cost of buy and just, you know, there's less confidence in the market and less capital available. And the going cap rate in the future when you want to sell or refinance is now a six cap. That means you have a whole 20% of margin that you lost on the value of your assets. So that means that you have to increase the net income by 20% just to stand still in terms of valuation, if that makes sense. So you're running off your, you're running off your ass basically just to stand still. Okay. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because yeah, you're now thing. the cash flow is worth less because when the cap rate goes up, the valuations come down and vice versa. So right now we're seeing cap rates increasing and guys are buying buildings at, at very aggressive cap rates still. The only deals that are closing right now that I see are people that are paying at values that were ex- maybe quote unquote acceptable a few months ago. But now it feels like they're gambling, but they're willing to take that gamble because I think they can, they think they could outrun the speed of which the cap rates are going to increase versus how much value they can create. To me, that's gambling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just as a uh, educational moment for our listeners who are not familiar with what cap rates are, Marcin, can you break that down real quick? Sure. The simplest way to look at a cap rate is let's assume you buy a building cash and let's just use a really simple building. Let's say you buy a building for a million dollars cash and that building uh, after its operating expenses, it kicks off $100,000. That means that building is a 10 cap, 10% cap. So in other words, 100,000 divided by a million is 10%. So theoretically, if you got that net income for 10 years and you had no debt on the building, you'd get your money back in 10 years. Essentially, it's a cap rate. That's a 10 cap. If you paid 10, if you paid 2 million for that same building and the income was still 100,000, then it would be a five cap. It'd be a 5% cap rate. So essentially, the lower the cap rate, the more you pay for the capitalization of the assets. Um, yeah, it, it's essentially the, the problem is if you buy that same building for a million dollars today because the cap rate is, by the way, there is no 10 caps in the market. Just I'm using that because it's a round number. If you can show me a 10 cap, I'd buy it today. But theoretically, if you bought a 10 cap, because the market is, that's where the market is. Actually, let's use the other one. The market, let's just say the market is at a five cap, which is actually pretty ind- indicative of what it is. And you paid $2 million for that $100,000 in income. If the market corrected itself and cap rates went up to, let's just say 10, that same building that was worth $2 million you paid at five cap for it is now at 10 caps. So now that building is worth $1 million. So for you to get back to a $2 million valuation, you based on a 10 cap, you would now have to double the net income from a hundred to $200,000. And essentially guys are buying buildings because, and, and these are extreme examples, but guys are buying buildings, let's just say at a hundred thousand income, and they think they can drive the income to 200,000. And they think that the building's going to be worth X, but they're not accounting for the fact that the cap rates are increasing as well. So they're still using today's valuation method to project the future value, but that's not how it works. And that's a huge risk. That is a huge risk. So when you talk about return of capital, then that still is generally the basic business model, but you're going to be looking at an underwriting that is conservative. That's right. You got to be super conservative when you underwrite. Like for example, if you're going in cap rate, the cap rate of which that you're buying, let's just say, again, let's use the number 5%. Use 5%. You're going out cap rate if you think you're going to refinance or sell in 24 months once you're done your business plan, you're going out cap rate, you should be valuing it at least at a six cap. 
Because if you came in at a five and you value yourself coming out at six, you're already cutting yourself off at the knees, so to speak. Now, if your projections are wrong and for whatever reason, the cap rates don't go up to six and they stay at five, you're killing it. Well done. But if it doesn't work at a five, but if it doesn't work at a six and the market goes to a six and it's 24 months later and you're trying to refinance or sell, you're upside down because you won't be able to refinance and get a return of capital. You won't be able to sell and get out at the profit. You might not even get out at par depending on where the market is. You have to manage your risks, essentially. Right. Yeah, underwriting. That's the biggest thing is underwriting. You got to build in the going out cap rates. That's probably one of the biggest mistakes I see with underwriting right now. We get pitch deals all the time to because we invest directly in deals, we buy our own deals, and we also co-invest with operators with JV. And when I look at some of their deals, and I think to myself, I go, okay, you're going in at five and you're saying you're coming out at that's way too aggressive. That a year ago I was uncomfortable with that. But today, come on, man, you got to build in that. The other thing is interest rate risk. So I was getting term sheets for bridge loans, you know, sulfur plus essentially they were like three, 350 bips, 400 bips. So it was like three and a half, four percent. And that was bridge. It was bridge financing, what one point debt service coverage ratio, one times debt service. Now those same term sheets, because they've been a variable rate, those borrowers are now paying seven, eight, nine percent on those same deals. So if you didn't build that in, if you're still cash flow positive, I'd be shocked. And oh, you know, you got you, you guys have ever heard of a cash call? Yeah, those are real things. <laughs> when your investors have to pitch in more cash, you don't want to make those phone calls. So just so everyone's clear, so cash call is probably one of the it's a pretty bad situation to be in where you have investors who've already invested with you and they're supposed they're expecting returns. Right. They're and you're asking them for more them. money so that they can maintain the project. Yeah. So look, cash calls happen. Life happens, but cash calls, you should, you should not have to have a cash call because you've built in ample reserves. You've built, you, you've factored in the worst case scenario. And, you know, cash calls happen typically for two reasons. One, you didn't budget things properly or two, you didn't raise enough capital to begin with. And it's typically right. two reasons for cash calls. Okay. So our investors need to focus on that return of investment. We need to look at conservative underwriting. You know, that, that raises a question for me just personally, because one of the things I've always struggled with, right? I get a deal, I'm analyzing it, I'm thinking it over. And I'll, I'll tell you, especially my story at the very beginning, it's really funny. I'd analyze deals and this was my habit, right? I'd try to analyze two, three deals a week. I'd analyze them. I'd say, oh, this is unrealistic. It's a very bad price. I would pass on that one. Then I'd analyze the next one. Oh, it's not a good deal. I'll pass on it. Then I'd get one and it was somewhat close. And as soon as I got to a point where maybe, hey, this, this one's looking pretty good. Then my first thing was, oh, I must have done something wrong. Let me go back into my analysis and make all my assumptions more conservative and make them worse. And now it's a bad deal. I'm going to pass up, pass it up. And so I did that for a whole two years without really ever getting into anything that was good. And so my question to you is, how do you address that? How so, conservative should you be? So, so, so look, look, you can be as obvious answer. The more aggressive you are, the more deals you can suddenly do, the more conservative you are, the less things you can actually move on. So I'll, I'll answer it this way. So again, there's two variables, right? There's the revenue, there's the expenses. That, that, that's it. You got it. So 
On the expense side, being conservative is very important. And I mean, we typically underwrite operating costs at a minimum 50, 55%. Um, if you're going to B, C assets, maybe you can go higher than that. A assets, you can probably go lower. Obviously, they're 40, 45%, whatever it is. But there, there's some general rule of thumbs there. Uh, what I think is the real question mark today compared to any other time in history is this inflation thing is a real thing and it's not going anywhere. You know, I'm not saying you should be forecasting 20, 25% rent growth because that's just insane. The rent, rent growth we've had over the last few years that, you know, that, that was a bump that was made a lot of people look smart. Again, going back to what I mentioned earlier in terms of making it really easy to look like you killed it in the multifamily business, but like historically, Building in 2% rent growth was always the responsible thing. Now I'm seeing even bankers telling me, I, I literally had one of my guys call me earlier, and even the banks are telling you to build in 3 or 4% rent growth now. And 3 or 4% rent growth is insane, historically speaking. Like, his, like historically, if, you know, we used to, for fun, when a deal was, you know, crap, and we try to convince ourselves that it was a good deal, we would just bump the rent growth to 3 or 4%. And of course, we'd never get it, we'd never get it funded because you know you can't build that in as an expectation. But today, that is an expectation. So one of the things you could be looking at again, it depends on the market and city and wherever you guys are looking at. But I do think that it's probably safe to say that the rent growth is going to be more aggressive for the next few years. And I don't know if it's going to be next three years, five years, ten years, whatever it is. But you know, building in a three three percent, four percent rent growth is probably going to be something that we're going to see more and more of. And if you don't do that, you're not going to see, and again, I'm overly generalizing, but if you don't do that, you're, it's going to be harder to make returns make sense for most people in, in, in a lot of the circumstances. Interest rates obviously is a big one. Insurance is massive. That's another thing too, depending on where you're investing in the US. I was underwriting stuff in Florida and the, the insurance is $1,400, $1,800 a door per year. Like that's insane, right? We're looking at stuff in Texas. It's half of that. Or less than half of that. So, going back to the rent growth, just a quick question. So, are you projecting expenses to increase? At yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you, yeah, you build in so your annual expense increase. It, that's actually really important. Yeah, you you want to make sure that because the whole thing about the rent growth is you're essentially trying to forecast to some extent inflation, right, or posted inflation. If I personally don't believe we're going to see two percent inflation for a while. Even if they can knock it back, I don't see 2% in our future anytime soon. So using 3 4%, I think is, you know, that's what we're doing. As far as expenses, I'd be building in that as well. And I feel like in some cities, even 3 to 4% is conservative. I think, rate, I think it's rate, conservative across the board. To be honest, I think it's conservative across the board. But the problem is you can't build a performa where it shows 5 8% growth per year because you're going to make every building look like a rock star. And it's, and whether that happens or not, that is not something that I would account on. Like a performa is an honest, as a guesstimate, because you are guessing, you know, guessing that interest, that rates are going to be not rates, pardon me, that's rent's going to grow five, seven, eight percent per year. That's, I don't look, if it keeps happening, it happens, but I wouldn't count on it. Very yeah, interesting. Makes sense. Makes cool. sense. Now, so far, we've been talking mostly to the investors. I really love the way that you separated that and people who are listening can kind of answer it honestly for themselves. Hey, am I an investor or a professional? But I think this part is getting into the middle, right? This would be probably more relevant for a professional. Just before we start really talking to the professional investors, 
how involved in your experience are your investors in looking at your analysis and your underwriting? How they're trusting you, right? So would they be able to answer these questions for themselves? And it also kind of goes back to what we've been discussing in some of our other podcasts, where it's explores the idea of what really is passive investing. How truly passive is passive in a sense? I mean, pass passive is passive. <laughs> passive means you write a check and you get newsletters and updates and you know reports, and one day in the future you get your money back with a bunch of profit. That, that's passive. You know, that's what a passive investment is. Could you imagine buying stock in Tesla and calling up Elon Musk and telling him you don't like the way they uh, designed the new Model 3? I mean, you know, unless you bought 10 or 20% of the stock, I don't know how you would make that work, right? And nor would you want to, right? I mean, most people that invest in stocks, they do it because they believe in the business, the management team, and they believe in the future. But but they don't want to be involved in the day-to-day management of Tesla or deciding what the new door handles are going to look like. That's just, you know, they're busy, right? They got their whole world. Uh, passive, in my mind, is truly passive. Now, it doesn't mean you don't disclose things. You, you certainly do that. At a minimum, you know, my thoughts are you provide financial statements on a per annum basis. You do quarterly updates to some extent, depending on how much excitement is going on in your business. If you're, look, if you're buying a 200, 300 unit building and you're doing a value add, as exciting as value added, there, there really isn't much material stuff to report on a monthly basis. Quarterly, maybe, yeah, okay, we turned over 12 units. We got six new tenants and they're paying an extra 80 bucks. And other than that, yeah, the pool's cleaned up. There's no more green stuff in the pool. It, it's little stuff. There there shouldn't be that many things to talk about. Now, if you're new construction, if you're tearing something down to the studs, sure, there's more excitement. You did a new roof, things like that. But in my mind's eye, investors typically are happy with quarterly updates. And as long as they get the financials on an annual basis, maybe you want to do like a message from the president or like an MDNA style report where you have a discussion analysis, where you see the risks and opportunities and things like this, but that is passive. And actually just, just to finish that off, when, if you're a passive investor and you're trying to decide where to invest, whenever you're dealing with somebody, I think a great question is, so you're telling me about return on capital. Tell me about return of capital. And the person's probably going to see what do you mean? And the question is, how do I get my money up? Like, how do we exit? And what you should be looking for is multiple ways to create an exit. Because again, that return of capital is really important. So you can either exit from refinance. Okay, what if you can't refinance? What if you sell? What else can you do with it? What are the other options? You know, And if you're holding it longer, because that return of capital thing, I can tell you right now, sophisticated investors, the first thing they look at is return of capital before they look at return on capital. Because when you can assess the risk of you getting your money back, you can then better assess the potential risk that you're taking on relative to the kind of investment you're thinking of making. I like that. I like that. So I want to just come back to the quick the question I asked, which was about your investors, when they come to you, how involved are they in looking at your underwriting and questioning how conservative you are? Uh, what I mean, do you think would be your recommendation for passive investors who might be? Looking? I mean, it, it, I guess it depends on the level in which you're operating and who you're investing with. For example, with us, we, you know, we have a pretty broad network and database of people that trust us. So that first round of due diligence is typically a little bit heavier. 
Um, again, with the fund model, you're not really depending on any one particular building. You're more investing in the thesis and the, the general idea of what we're pursuing. If you want to look at past deals, that's something else. But going forward, it's not, yeah, this is the building we're buying because it's more of a fund approach. You know, our investors typically are comfortable with a, more of a higher level due diligence process. That said, you know, we have people that want to write seven figure plus checks and they may want to participate in something very particular, then they may get more involved. But for somebody who's just looking to put in 100, 200, 500, it's all relative to the individual's comfort level. But most individual passive investors, first of all, in my experience, for better or for worse, they half the time they don't know what they're looking at. And that's another conversation that you can maybe walk them through it. But a lot of them don't want, you know, the, they're more interested in the relationship with you than the deal itself. So they're most of the time they're just writing the check and then just waiting for the results. Right. They do, they do their due diligence in, in the context of what they think is important to them. But due diligence is different for everybody, right? You know, some of them may want to look at some modeling. They do want to look at some performance. Others are more investing because they have been referred to you by other people that have had good experiences. So it, it's all over the board. But depending on how you raise money, there's certain disclosures that you have to provide. And as long as you're providing the necessary disclosures, you know, in, in my experience, the questions are typically based around the business and the business plan and some of the legal documents. Cause if you guys ever look at the legal stuff, it's some of the wording is very scary. So obviously you got to work your way through it with people, make sure they're comfortable. They understand that there is risk. It's not a guaranteed investment and they just need to be comfortable with the potential risk that that's, you know, involved. So now let's talk to the professional real estate investor. Let's uh, do it. So we've already talked a lot about some of these underwriting deals and maybe let's talk about the fund model. Let's get into the weeds a little bit more on that. I always like the idea of the chicken and the egg, right? <laughs> what I've been doing is, hey, we have a, a deal. We go out and find a deal. Yeah. Now we got to go find some money. Right. And you've done it in reverse with a fund where you have. Well, you do the, you do them simultaneously. My comment to Alex, to you and anyone else listening on the professional side, I would strongly implore you to spend a lot of time doing it exactly the way you're describing it initially, where you get a deal, then you get the capital and you have all your paperwork for that deal. The reason for it is because it's two plus two equals four. Whereas the fund model, you have a lot of different moving parts. You have valuation issues between one asset compared to another. You have timing issues when somebody invests compared to when somebody else invests. You have all kinds of different conversations that are happening concurrently because it's no longer this uh, entity that somebody's putting money into is solely investing in this project. It's, yeah, it bought this project and now it bought this project and now it bought this project. So how do you do it in a way where your investors feel like they got a fair shake on the entire partnership? So there, there's all kinds of different things they need to pay attention to. Also, Depending on again how you do the model with the the filing and the compliance requirements, sometimes you'll be required to do a different level, different standard of financial statements, financial reporting. So again, things get more expensive, they get more complicated. You know, the accountant that you originally had that helped you with your initial acquisition is might look at the fund model as the fund model accounting. And he or she may want to jump out a window <laughs> because you're, because you're layering, you're late, you're adding, you're growing, you're adding, you're growing, and you don't have a start stop 
It's just, it's a much more complicated process. I'm not trying to dissuade somebody from doing it, but it's not as simple as, hey, we're buying that building. It's 200 units. We need to raise $4 million. We got this debt. And that's another thing. When you're doing the fund model, you have multiple entities stacked on top of each other, eventually flowing up into one entity. So you got to also deal with the lenders. When you're going to a lender, if you have one lender for this building and you have another lender for this building, they need to be comfortable and understand how it works in a way where they feel good about the transaction. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's not, it's not just, it's not just, Hey, here's the building. Here's where we raise the money. Okay. That's it. It's okay. Here's a building. There's another building over here and there's another building over here. They flow up here, but don't worry about that because of this. And then, and if you don't understand what you're lawyers have prescribed for you to do and you don't manage those expectations and structures correctly, it's going to be a hot mess and it's going to, it's going to slow you down. Meanwhile, you're trying to buy this building over here, but your financing partner can't get their head wrapped around. What about this? Like, it's just because you need to lay things out properly. Let's touch on the way that you lay things out, like in terms of the structuring of a fund, let's say for a professional right now, that's just getting started. They've had the previous uh-huh. experience maybe with, uh, you know, doing some multifamily, raising some capitals, maybe six figure, seven figure deals. Now, how do they transition into, all right, I need to create a fund, eight, nine figures or more. What type of team should I be putting together? What type of professionals do I need? How do you generate like the groundwork for something like that? So if you've never done a fund and you want to do a fund, you should have somebody on your team. In, intimately familiar with the fund model on your team, like part of the team, part of the executive, either, either in a GP capacity or in a direct operating capacity, because there's so many nuances there. Also, I would strongly recommend you have somebody in a CFO capacity, a legitimate chief financial officer, because you're now layering a business and you're creating all kinds of complexity. Like I, it might be better for somebody to be part of a fund model with someone else before they try to start their own, I think is what I'm trying to say, because there's just so many things that guys, real estate is complicated enough. The fund model is a different world and a different industry and has its own set of rules and expectations that have nothing to do with real estate yet. You need to, you need to abide by them. So it's my, my suggestion if somebody wanted to get involved in a fund model is to probably partner with somebody else already running it or somebody else that's already done it and hang off their coattails a little bit because that, that is a very complicated thing to just undertake. It'd be no different than you guys saying, Hey, you know, we, we did a few Airbnbs and, uh, let's go buy a building. You could do it. But you'd probably be better off working with somebody else who bought a few buildings before. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly the trend I'm seeing in multifamily, right? Yeah. People don't just go out and buy 100-unit apartment buildings by themselves. They, that partnership lends a lot of confidence. Yeah. With Real estate is a team sport. Method. Real estate is a team sport. Multifamily especially is a team sport. And again, the initial fund that I kicked off in my mid-20s when I left PE, I handled the fund and private equity side of it and the operations. And I had somebody who had a fair bit of gray hair on their head who actually headed up the acquisition side because of, of the assets, because trying to manage all of it. To, and we had a few other partners like it's a team sport. You need to really stay in your lane and become more proficient. So again, for the professional real estate investor, there's three roles you can play that add the most value in a deal. 
Number one is acquisitions. Number two is asset management. And three is capital raising. And capital raising means everything from debt, equity, structuring, understanding how everything fits. The person that ends up overseeing capital raising ends up in a lot of times being the CEO or being more of a team builder because you're you're drawing the vision together, you're putting everything together, you're showing people where they fit. But those three roles in the business are the ones that drive the most value. Asset management, self-explanatory, we all understand that one. Acquisition is a profession in of itself. So, you know, they're, they're, those are the three legs of the stool. And whether you do it as a syndication deal by deal or you're doing a fund model, Whatever you're doing, th those three pillars need to be met. Yeah, that's definitely important. Yeah, I concur and agree with you on that regard. And, you know, as Alex mentioned before, I mean, even getting into syndication, you definitely needed to partner with someone with more experience. Then that's the startup, that's some of the syndication journeys that we've had. My other question, though, is the scaling of the funds. So again, you know, going from something where you've raised enough capital for maybe seven figures or eight, how do you make that jump to those higher figure assets? How do you get enough capital and convince enough people to contribute that level of funding to your fund? Is it just your track record of success that you can show? Or is there a new strategy when you're at that level to gain higher do dollar values? So as you become more sophisticated in, in, in the game and the business, and as you develop a track record or a partner with people that have a track record, what ends up happening is... You, you just by force start to think bigger. You end up thinking bigger. You end up looking at bigger transactions. Numbers get bigger. Zeros get bigger. It's just, it's all part of it. And also what ends up happening is a lot of the guys that initially started out just raising money from accredited investors or 506B, 506C, whatever offering they're doing, eventually what ends up happening is some of these guys end up looking at capital partners that are much larger. So they'll look at institutional style investors, maybe boutique private equity firms like ours, where we make a co-investment or a direct investment into a building or a series of buildings. Family offices, which are, if you guys aren't familiar with family offices, family offices are typically for, so if an entrepreneur sold his business for $100 million and he's got $50 million in the bank, he doesn't just walk into uh, Bank of America and deposit $50 million and say, what do you got? Typically people with high net worth, ultra high net worth of families, they start what's called a family office. They'll hire their own chief investment officer, accounting team, tax team, insurance team. They'll literally have a small army of people that their job is to manage the family's estate and their wealth and tax planning, like just everything. So those family offices, they allocate money to investing. And a lot of them invest in real estate. And a lot of times they invest passively with other groups. You know, they'll those types of groups are great potential targets. But again, you're looking for, at that point, you're already operating at a level where when they ask you for certain types of reporting, certain type of disclosure, corporate governance, board of directors, structure, they're asking you for very specific things that they expect you to have when you're operating at a certain level. So the very long answer to your simple question is you look up the capital food chain, so to speak, you will be required to have obviously track record that, that goes without exception, but you have to have the sophistication and know-how to understand how to report to them in a way that is consistent with how they want to see things. And it's uh, interesting you mentioned the family office. 
We actually just uh, finished interviewing a boutique family office firm, and we'll have an episode on that coming out soon. And yeah, you're definitely right in that regards. I mean, they do have a lot of control and power in terms of where some of these funds go in terms of investment opportunities. Yeah, and they have very particular requirements, both from a voting standpoint, control standpoint, disclosure standpoint. Essentially, they're happy for you to make a bundle of money, but they're not going to allow you to do it in a way where it's at their expense. And again, the whole thing of return of capital versus return on capital. As you go up and up the food chain for capital, the institutional investors, that's the, that, that's how they all start. They all look at how do I get my money back first? We want to be considerate of your time, Marcin. So do you have any other messages or lessons for our audience or maybe ways that they could contact you before we end our interview today? Sure. Yeah. No, I, and at the, <laughs> you guys asked me, I love it because you guys asked me a question and I talked for like 10 minutes and I, I don't mean to sound, you know, that this is complicated, but there is a level of complexity to this industry, to this business. There's a reason why there's so much money in money. Once you understand how the whole money, capital raising, equity game works, and it is fairly complicated. So with that respect, what we do, our business at One Real Capital, I mean, we obviously have our own acquisitions, we do our own deals, but uh, when COVID hit, we started something called M1 Inner Circle. And that's for people that are either looking to be professional real estate investors or already are professional real estate investors, and they want to understand the scaling of the multifamily business and learning how to structure deals, ways to raise capital. We don't raise money for our members because that's just not our business, but we do show you the things that we've done or we do, uh, our networks, accounts, lawyers, fee structures, different ways to do things, how to e even simple things like how to get in front of accredited investors or high net worth people. So this is part of the agenda that we have at M1 Inner Circle. So for anybody who wants to learn more about it, you can go to my website, marsandroves.com. And there's also some free resources there that you can download to help you kind of get on the path in terms of there's some mini courses and things like that. If people want to learn more about, we have a program there, how to raise capital for real estate. I think we have a free mini course there as well. So there's a lot of really good information. And the thing is that this is our world. This is what I do. So that information there is it's not theoretical. It's our world. And, you know, I implore you, if you do want to scale and grow and be able to raise even an extra half a million or a million bucks or five million bucks or whatever it is, you're going to need to spend more time with groups, either like ours or other groups out there, just to actually show you how to do this because it, it, it is tremendously profitable. It's just a skill set that you have to learn. No different than learning how to acquire a building, no different than learning how to manage a property. You know, you need to learn the skill set that goes with it. And the challenge is that there's so few people teaching it. That, that That's really what the biggest challenge is. And unfortunately, you may blow a meeting with an investor and not even know it. Like, they might ask you a question. And it's not that you're lying or that you're trying to deceive them, but you genuinely don't know that you don't know. And because you don't know that you don't know, chances are slim that they're going to educate you on what they need. And because of that, that six or seven figure check that you may have gotten will just go away and disappear and you won't understand why, you know, so that that's one of the main things that we really work on. Yeah. So other than that, guys, I appreciate obviously the opportunity to join you guys here and uh, yeah, the website's the best place to get in touch. Awesome. Thank Thanks. you so much. We really appreciate you having you on the show and giving us your time and your expertise and knowledge. Thank you so much, Marcin. Take care. Had a lot of fun.